Hey everyone, Jared Fuller here with another rerun episode. This week, I want to share a more recent conversation. Today, we're rebroadcasting the conversation I had with Deanna Van Buren in the summer of 2020. This episode was recorded at the height of the pandemic and in the midst of yet another racial reckoning in the United States. It was a turbulent and uneasy moment in honestly what feels like a never-ending stream of uneasy moments and Deanna felt like the perfect person to talk about this with her work blends architecture and activism to end mass incarceration she does an incredible job better than almost anyone I've ever talked to I think at connecting the role of design to the important problems of our time Unfortunately, so many of these issues are still in the discourse today. They are still things that we need to talk about and wrestle with, making this episode both timely and timeless. This was an important conversation and one that I was so proud to feature on the show. It's conversations like these that I hope Scratching the Surface can make a place for, and this episode, in many ways, is the standard I hope every episode can live up to. So here is my 2020 conversation with Deanna Van Buren. Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about architecture and restorative justice. Today on the show, I am joined by the architect and activist Deanna Van Buren. Deanna is the co-founder and design director of Designing Justice Designing Spaces, an architecture and real estate development nonprofit working to end mass incarceration by building infrastructure that attacks its root causes, poverty, racism, unequal access to resources, and the criminal justice system itself. This was a powerful conversation for me, and it's become even more powerful in the last few weeks. This was recorded before the recent deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, which have once again ignited conversations around racism and policing and white supremacy that underscores so much in this country. And I think it's important to say that design is not exempt from that conversation. In fact, design is often complicit. A constant theme of this podcast is that design is ideology made artifact. And that ideology all too often is rooted in white supremacy and in racism. Design is not an inherently positive enterprise. But Deanna's work, I think, shows us another way to think about this. Trained as an architect, her work with Designing Justice and Designing Spaces seeks not to design better prisons, but to actually build a world without prisons. Rooted in ideas not of criminal justice, but in restorative justice, she works with designers and non-designers alike to truly rebuild the entire infrastructure and shows us how design truly can make a difference. In this conversation, we talk about all of this. We talk about how style and aesthetics convey meaning how design and architecture codify ways of thinking, and the power in co-design processes that bring more and more people to the table to serve the community around it. This is honestly one of my very favorite conversations I've ever had on this show, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I have. Remember, Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter written by me, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. If you like Scratching the Surface and want to see it continue, please consider becoming a supporting member. It truly means so much to me. For all the details, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you, as always, for listening, and here is my conversation with Deanna Van Buren. I think a good place to begin, or at least to kind of set the stage for a lot of the things that I'm interested in talking about, is to uh, to talk about about your organization, Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. Can you talk about what that is for the listeners who are unfamiliar with it and kind of how you think about the work that you're doing there? Sure. Uh, Designing Spaces, uh, Designing Justice, Designing Spaces um, is a firm I co-founded about five years ago. 
and it's an architecture and real estate development practice. So we, we merge both design and finance together to build the infrastructure to end mass incarceration by attacking it at its roots, right? Going down to the root causes and, and building for that. Uh, the organization itself, is, or we're abolitionists, right? So we don't build prisons or jails or detention centers or courthouses or police stations or any kind of traditional justice infrastructure and believe that um, we can see a world without all of that. And we need to build for, for that world. And uh, so far, so good. <laughs> I think I, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I love it. Gotta have the big vision, right? That's right. That's right. I, I mean, there's th what I, I watched your Ted talk um, where you kind of talked about the origins of it and you tell this story about um, being asked to kind of go into a prison to talk to inmates about the, uh, I think the, the quote that you used was the positive potential of design. Uh, and you were in this, the, the way you tell the story is that you're in this space thinking that you have to talk about this and then just seeing the opposite, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I found that story so profound because so much of design education, I think, uh, talks about design as this inherently positive thing. Uh, mm -hmm. There's this kind of myth um, or or ethos in in design that design can quote unquote change the world. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I th we can talk about what that means mm -hmm. later. But I'm very interested in how design doesn't always do that. <laughs> design isn't always a positive thing. It isn't inherently positive at all. Um, and something else that you talk about a lot is, is that design kind of takes ideologies and makes them concrete, which is something that I'm very interested in also. Can you talk about that experience of being in the prison and having that moment and how you think about the positive positivity that's in design or that kind of myth around that a little bit more? Well, why don't I start with the positivity of design piece? I mean, I think that that is truly a myth in a lot of mm -hmm. reasons. And I think that um, design actually can kill people and does, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It does. Uh, it really hurts people. Uh, bad design, bad intention behind design, um, not questioning the intent mm -hmm. and, and the purpose for what you're doing. You can really hurt people. And you hurt them for a really long time. And, I, and I'm specifically thinking of architecture, of course, because I'm an architect. Mm -hmm. um, but graphic design can do the same. Like, what are the messages yeah. you're sending to people? How are you embedding yeah. racism, uh, patriarchy into your work? It's mm -hmm. almost nearly impossible not to do it. That's the crazy part, right? right. You can right. Almost right. Not, it's super hard not to do, to do harm because our systems are harmful and our systems themselves are, are flawed, deeply flawed. So as a designer, if you're working for their, any system, social system, institution, you're probably doing some harm uh, and you need to question, 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 question constantly mm -hmm. what you're doing and why you're doing it and who is it for and where where's your mind around it. So that is where I, I, I when I went into that prison and it's not like I didn't believe it before. And I, you know, you tell stories in TED Talks. To get right, the TED right, Talks right. right. So there was kind of a double situation where I had heard about restorative justice as a as an indigenous practice um, that had been basically squashed through colonialism and that it was getting reignited. And I was learning about that. And I was like, OK, this feels like a, a, a do no harm system, right, a system of repair and restoration and then I'm seeing this other system of punishment. Mm -hmm. And who are we punishing? Right? And who's that system mm -hmm. for? And who is it working for? Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, to be in a prison for the first time was pretty gross, right? It was it was so obvious who I was sitting in the sitting in there with. Right. All yeah. black men, right? Black mm -hmm. and brown men. Um, I was in there with college students, all white, privileged. Mm -hmm. And I called it like the piano key circle, right? We're sitting in a circle talking about restorative yeah. justice and design, right? Restorative justice and design in this space. I was like, this is crazy, y'all. So yeah. um, it was, and they would have to get strip search before they came into class. And it just, the whole thing was gross. 
and I'm, I'm sitting with these people who are, who are, you know, human beings who I'm getting to know over the course of a semester and seeing how deep, deeply, um, uh, compassionate they were, how deeply, uh, creative they were. Uh, they were wonderful people actually. <laughs> and you sort of start to really question, Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening here and how have we participated in these environments? This was an environment where they would meet their families. I didn't even get to go. Only once did I get to go into where the cells were, which was, and I've been in many prisons and jails since then. I've seen a lot of, right. of the interiors of them and just the waiting room where the family members would come at every level, uh, was disturbing. You, I can't imagine children coming in to see their fathers there. And designers did this, right? They participated <laughs> in it. They created it. And they probably thought, we did a good job, right. you know? But what did you just do? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> really, what did you do? What's this, <clears throat> what sort of beliefs did you just build? Um, it's, it's sad. Yeah, I mean, you said, you said two things. I mean, you said a lot of things in there that I feel like we could talk about more. But there were two things that really jumped out at me. And I think this idea that design can be destructive, uh, can be deadly, can be harmful, is so important and is, for me, it's hard to talk about in a kind of clear and coherent way. And so I'm kind of, I might just be asking you for help in kind of articulating this a little bit. Um, You know, and because I even think about it comes back to what I was saying earlier about this kind of myth that design can change the world. But the, the truth is design does change the world. And I'm not saying that with arrogance or ego, but I think what you're talking about is exactly right. That by building a prison that is changing things. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, roads that are put in cities to segregate them that is changing things it's this idea that design takes these ideologies these worldviews these these points of views and takes them from ideas and makes them reality Mm -hmm. uh and something that you talk about a lot is the answer here isn't just building a prettier prison (laughs) or making nicer buildings this this actually goes deeper than that can you talk a little bit more about how how design can do that how design can kind of take these ideologies and change things yeah yeah i mean that's um that's the sort of ideal uh example the if design can kill design can also heal Right? It can mm. do both things. So you said it yourself, like we build ideologies. Well, which ideologies mm-hmm. are you building? Right. Who, what are you building and for whom? And in what ethos or belief system are you working under? So uh, I think that as easily as we can build prisons to hurt people, we can build other types of buildings that will really help people flourish flourish and thrive, right? So mm-hmm. if I, I believe in restorative justice, I, I really do believe that that is the future. The question then becomes, what does that look like? And uh, what is my role as a designer to create a different kind of world? If you believe in right. equity, like if you truly believe in mm-hmm. equity, that means equity across gender, equity across race and class, what does that look like? How do you build for that? Because the infrastructure will foment the belief. And it will, I mean, anchors it pretty deeply. That's the incredible thing about at least the built environment is it really anchors and it amplifies the belief. Um, It's just challenging because we're we're currently living, A, in a traumatized world. We're currently living in a world that is completely dominated by men and completely Mm -hmm. dominated by by white supremacy. Like there's a lot of really (laughs) Mm -hmm. intense stuff that we've been building for hundreds and hundreds of years. So you're up against the big thing. So, you know, I, you know, for me, turning to indigenous beliefs and philosophies that are about uh, our connection to nature. You know, we we have climate change happening. Like, so who are you listening to, and who, where, where's your philosophical and belief structure? And go from there. Do not follow. You know, do not just do respond to the systemic things, right? You have to really do some deep thinking and inquiry about what you're doing 
and who are you doing it for? I keep saying that, but like, who's your boss? Right. <laughs> who's your, I mean, who's I, telling you what to do? <laughs> I, I think, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I, I'm sorry that I like took this to like big questions <laughs> right away. I we will come to back to it. I love to, okay. I can keep it. I can stay way up there with you, Jared. Super meta. Like I sit okay. around I mean, I, gazing into the sky, thinking meta thoughts all day. Okay, so we'll get along. We'll get along. Great. <laughs> I do. I do want to come back and talk about your work specifically, but I do have like one other question at this level, um, because something I watched your uh, your talk uh, at Harvard's Black in Design conference from a couple years ago, and you talk about uh, when you moved to Virginia and seeing these kind of Thomas Jefferson designed courthouses, um, and I think. There, there's two levels to this idea of ideologies, and there's the the level of um, kind of putting these kind of points of views or worldviews or ideologies into the world and making them concrete. But then there's also the surface level in that styles and aesthetics and art movements uh, come to be associated with certain things. And mm-hmm. so there is this, that Jeffersonian kind of style is seen as, you know, for a lot of people, it's seen as serious. Uh, you know, this is uh, important. This is, uh, this is the government. And then other people, it's, this is something you stay away from. This is uh, scary. There's the recent, um, uh, the recent, uh, like Trump administration proposal to kind of reinstate a classical architecture style for government buildings which right which is on a superficial level that seems like okay like whatever you know this is like small uh things to worry about in regards to everything going on in the world but in a way it's also not because it's reinforcing all of these ideologies just through aesthetics Mm -hmm. which i find really interesting um and comes back to your idea of it's not just about designing prettier prisons. And so I don't know if I have a question there other than I would love to hear your point of view on the the aesthetic level to all of this also and how that is equally or potentially equally as dangerous and harmful. You're making me think of, of something that I've been thinking a lot about um, and, and really coming from um, a professor. Uh, actually, where is she? Her name is Dr. Ruha Benjamin. And she's a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. And what she's talking about is the fact that we're living in other people's imaginations, right? Mm. The aesthetic, the world around us, those aesthetics are the imaginations of our founding fathers. Mm -hmm. Our founding fathers were all white privileged men who owned, Mm -hmm. who enslaved people who were coming out of a certain ideology of that time. So when we talk about aesthetics in the built environment and how they're anchoring old sets of beliefs and through the gaze of a specific person, that's a great example of that, right? Mm -hmm. Why are we still building things from hundreds of years ago that were coming out of an ideology of a very small minority of people in power? And the thing is now part of our advocacy is like, you'll, we have to, we have to reimagine like stuff that we have to reimagine if we want any kind of future we have to break out of that. That's what's most scary about those kinds of moves. Those are power plays. Mm-hmm. Is to at the same with with memorials, right? We we saw. Right. I grew up in Virginia, so I grew up in the South, surrounded by Civil War reenactments and mm-hmm. Civil War memorials and mm-hmm. celebration of a of a war <laughs> was around enslavement. Uh, and so, you know, we we get we live there. We get stuck in sort of a glory days of our current people who are in power, right? Because so, all that stuff works for somebody. Mm-hmm. But we're now at a point where we, if we don't sort of do some radical, and this is where design really can, can be for good, right? If we don't yeah. do some radical imagining with everybody at the table, we ain't gonna make it. Like it's that important. <laughs> right. I think it's right. that important, right? The, the, the sort of uh, cross-disciplinary, multi-stakeholder, radical reimagining of everything, every system, the built environment, et cetera. And this is where designers, my advocacy has been to, for us in order to get out of that, to have us at the table in the beginning, you know, with the policymakers, with, with government entities, with grassroots community organizers, 
because this is where we're at, and COVID nineteen has only made that incredibly right. glaringly obvious. Did have you read the book um, Against Creativity by Ollie Mould? No, I I don't have time to read any smart books. <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll talk about books. Let's talk about books later. Um, But but his thesis in in that book is that what we now think of as creativity is actually just um, attempts to re-entrench the status quo to keep the same people in power to mm-hmm. keep the oh, same yeah. dominant ideologies. And yeah. I read this book and he, he, I don't think he mentions the word design really in the book at all, mm-hmm. but it is such a book about design. And and I read it and you could like do a find and replace with the word creativity and put design <laughs> and the whole book <laughs> still works. And I think this is, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier of, um, you know, kind of you sitting in this prison with these, privileged college students and that kind of disconnection i feel like this term design thinking has devolved into that uh i i talk about this idea a lot of the the sort of designer savior industrial complex this idea that the designer can just (laughs) kind of swoop in the designer sees everything (laughs) in the world as a design problem and can just swoop in and fix it with some design Um, and i think that's where we get prettier prisons you know it's like oh Oh, we're we're making things better um or or in graphic design it's let's make a poster campaign solved it (laughs) done boom and and (laughs) what you're doing is not that um and can you talk about how you've moved beyond that kind of <laughs> designing into multiple stakeholders, into kind of doing these workshops, developing these curriculums? Um, what does that look like for you and for Designing Justice, Designing Spaces? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I never use that word design thinking. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, a, no. that's, a, that's a capitalist co- you know, codification. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a marketing term and people are just making tons of money off of it. So whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, what we do is just to, you know, initially is just like, hey, let's go collect some data. Let's mm. work with people because I don't it came from an I have no idea what I'm doing place. Right. There's mm. a place of humbleness. There's a place of not knowing, right? There's a place of curiosity. I right? just be right. curious. And in being curious, you go into a place without hierarchy, right? Without a kind of paternalistic, um, I'm the designer. I know a bunch of stuff. And really, right. you don't know very much. We, we, we know very little. Um, <laughs> and so when we go into community, I call it, it's almost like a knowledge exchange is more mm-hmm. where we try to go with it. I know, I know some stuff. Okay. I don't know nothing. I know some stuff, but so do they people know stuff, right? So you you, you go in and I also believe that people's creative capacity is innate. I think I actually believe design and the built environment is an innate thing, right? If we look at the base, the basic things we need in life, food, shelter, love, et cetera. We, we think about space. It's not like some relegation of the architect and the designer. I know about space. No, everybody knows about space. People live in that all day long. You yeah. know, they know, they know, and people are creative. And if you give them tools and kind of create a safe container, because people's creativity has been locked, especially in low-income communities of color. The trauma mm-hmm. locks, keeps you from accessing your natural creative capacity sometimes. So part of the way that we've started working is we really create a safe emotional container for people to access their wisdom and the creative capacity they have so they can share their knowledge mm. and we can make better, we can make the right stuff together. So it's just a total, it's a kind of a different framing of what design do, does and how you work. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's just a... Yeah, it's just a different thing. We even are now, the, we're starting to train what we call designers on deck, which are mm. local folks on the ground, community organizers who have not been trained in traditionally in design. We pay them and we we develop tools for it. So we, do, we, we customize tools for community engagement to get us where we need to be. And and note that the at the end game here is we're going to build some shit, right? The end game <laughs> right. isn't we're doing community engagement, woo woo woo. Like no, we're <laughs> we have to build this stuff. Have to, have yeah. to, have to. 
And people have to have agencies. It means they have to understand what's happening. They need to understand how it's getting financed. They need to understand the design considerations. They need to be highly engaged. So when you train local folks in how to just you know, facilitate and guide communities that they live in, you now have completely democratized the process. Exactly. Taking yourself out as the expert of the whole thing, right? We have technical, exactly. we, are, we are technical assistants. That's what we are. Mm. And designers have a role to play, but they're not going to save it, save the world. Right. right. But, but they will destroy the world if they're not participating, right? They, they are still important. I don't know why designers have to be this like savior thing. Just be on the yeah. team, y'all. You're just on the team. Like, that's my thing. Like, can we? And I advocacy is like, no, we're not going to save the world, but but you're in trouble if we're not on the team. <laughs> so right, right. you got to be, or the piece of the pie. The pie is the other, you know, the other metaphor. I'm like, we are a piece of the pie. Yeah. And you're not going to get, you're not going to be able to solve it if you don't have us on in the pie, right? So that's, um, and the community is, is part of the team, right? Like we're all yeah. trying to get this thing done together. Um, so it requires new processes as well. Everything's got to be rethought to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. And I mean, I, I want to, I want to be clear. I was not saying that your work is design thinking. Um, I agree with no, you. No, no, I didn't. Uh, did, did. In, in, I, I, in it, design it just, thinking. But it definitely um, gets called that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I think if someone doesn't look, you know, really look at kind of what you're doing, it could be brushed off as that. And so I just, I, I agree with you. I just, I didn't want you to think that I was calling your work design thinking. No, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't think that. Okay, good. Um, and I, I like what you're talking about, this idea of kind of democratizing the, the process. And this is also something that I've been thinking about a lot in kind of how for so long there have there have been these kind of blurry um, or these kind of siloed boundaries around different types of design. You're the graphic designer, you're the architect, you're the product designer, you know, you're the urban planner. And all of these are starting to blur a little bit. And I'm all on staff. I've got all those people on staff. And, and, and what I like about that and what I like about how you're thinking about it is, but then it doesn't just blur between types of design, but it blurs between the so-called designers and the non-designers. Everybody gets to participate. And I think this reflects this larger kind of sense that we're talking about that design is so pervasive in everything. And so how something I think about a lot is how do designers navigate a world where I want to I want to make sure I phrase this right. Um, navigate a world where Everything is design, basically. So design is not colonizing, but democratizing. Yeah, or decolonizing. I would say we should probably yeah. we're decolonizing design. That's probably better because democracy yeah. is a little bit of funk messed up right now. Oops, I almost <laughs> used the F word. Um, That's okay. This isn't on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um yeah. So like, how, yeah. how do you navigate that, I guess? Um, because you are talking about it as, uh, yeah, you have a particular set of skills. They are not the skills. They are not the only skills. Um, yes. And so I guess I'm not asking you to be prescriptive necessarily, but how do you change your your place in the process because you did you worked as an architect, you know, in a in a more kind of quote unquote traditional settings before. Um, <laughs> How have you shifted your own process in kind of moving into this kind of work? Well, a lot. I mean, when I worked in the, the corporate world, we never did any of this stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, at all. As a matter of fact, it was one of the impetus. I remember hearing uh, we had this process. There was some process being introduced into the firm when I was at Perkins and Well, which was, you know, it, indicated we'd be engaging some people, right, about this mm. sort of generative design of this, you know, university building at Berkeley. And I was like, I want to do that. I'm going to let's try this thing out. This makes a lot of sense to me. And everyone laughed at me and said, oh, um, no one's going to do that, Deanna. <laughs> and I was kind of like, you know what? I quit. Like, I got to get out of here. You know? yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. Uh, this is the only thing I've seen in a long time that makes sense to me, like this makes sense to me. It makes no sense at all that we're separated from the people, from all the people in our little office. So mm -hmm. when I started my 
first firm, Form Design Studio, and I was working on um, the Syracuse Peacemaking Center. I, I started to function on my own. I started to function more intuitively, right? I started to just trust my intuition. And I'd been building on that for a long time, right? I think if you want to move outside of structures and systems, you really have to be very self-guided mm-hmm. and very intuitive. And my intuition told me like, A, I can't design this thing by myself. B, I'm going to have to find a way to engage the community that makes sense, is culturally mm. responsive, and, and I'm going to have to come up with a, th- a different way to do this. So I just started making some stuff up. I was like, well, I'll get trained as a circle keeper. So I understand what peacemaking is more deeply. Uh, mm-hmm. I will run a circle process so that this community that's trying to learn how to do peacemaking, this is just one example. Like every process is different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, this is one yeah. process. Like every my client or partner is trying to bring this native American peacemaking practice into a non-native community for the first time. People have no idea how to do this. So mm-hmm. my design process for to, a for me to figure out what a peacemaking center needs to look like and feel like also needs to engage folks and like what is it in the first place so i was able to design this process the peacemaking palette where we did both design discussions around environments that people felt good in right at calm at peace mm-hmm. We did role playing, right? Pretend that you're about to meet someone who's really harmed you deeply. What talk talk me through the spaces that you're going through, right? And just imagine, mm-hmm. right? So it was a whole, it was a two and a half hour process. I still do it. But at the end, people are really able to give you real content and move into a different imaginary space. And it's very exciting to watch. And then you just stand back. Half the time I just at once people get right. going, you back off. <laughs> Let them go. So that is one process. Um, there are many. There are many, and they're all customized for the project and the situation. And so that's kind of a way one can practice. Something that I've noticed in your work and in in other interviews that you've done and the, the talks that I had watched is uh, your use of the term infrastructure, um, and kind of moving away from talking about these things as specifically architecture, but as infrastructure. And I'm interested in how you see the relationship of those two words and, and the value of infrastructure in all of this type of work. Yeah. Yeah, I think infrastructure came into play in my mind when I just saw the vastness of what had to be done. Mm-hmm. and changed. When I think of infrastructure, I'm thinking about the freeways, you know, the recycling systems mm-hmm. in a city, the, the mm-hmm. you know, suburbia versus this sort of urban context, you know, downtowns and, you know, low-income communities and the interconnectedness between things. And, and I started, you know, the system of mass incarceration is a large network of infrastructure from courthouses to uh, external uh, cities, which are prisons, to jails, and the whole systems and how they all interact with one another. I was like, oh, wow, we need to think bigger than a building Mm -hmm. Um, because this is a lot. We have to build an entirely new infrastructure and like right now, you know, we, we started, this was years and years ago talking about, oh, what does a restorative justice city look like? Like, mm. what if the whole city used restorative justice rather than punitive justice? What would it look like? What's the infrastructure you would need to pull that off? Because that's not like a building. That's like right. maybe a right. hundred buildings. That's mm-hmm. a whole new uh, system of uh, transport that takes us to um, parks and uh, wilderness. I don't know. Like we're just making, you know, you just start <laughs> to think about it. And I did that in 2013, 2012, 2013, started to ignite some of that thinking and have been pushing that for a long time. And now finally in LA, we are about to start work with local community organizers and hopefully the county to implement a distributed network of care rather than build jails, right? So the community organizers, and I've, uh, this is just a simple piece of advice to designers who want to be activists, follow the community organizers. Just find mm. them and, and follow them. <laughs> I follow them now because those are the people that are saving your ass. <laughs> so right, I right. 
we are with them and with the hopefully the county will be looking at a new infrastructure of of restorative care villages and behavioral health infrastructure, community-based care infrastructure. And that's a lot of stuff, right? And we're going to have to map the whole county and figure out what those are. And they wrote this amazing report. And I'm now analyzing the report for all all the stuff we got to build. Right? People are like, what do we build yeah. instead? I'm like, I have the longest list ever. <laughs> you know, like, And it keeps getting longer. We've got a lot of work to do, y'all. Stop doing that other stuff. And so it's happening, right? It's yeah. To me, that's just the restorative justice city project, but it, but for health and for health and wellness. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you started answering kind of where I was going with that question also, because I don't, I don't mean to sound like a skeptic or, or negative in any way, but you know, when I see projects like this and I'm not, I'm not talking about your projects, you, you know, your work specifically, it, uh, there's always a sense of me that's like, well, what can a building really do? Like, can it actually do that much? And that's why I was interested in your use of the word infrastructure, because it seemed like you were not just talking about, oh, we're just going to make this one new space, that there's all this kind of other stuff that's connected to it. Um, and I, I guess the question, the question that I'm kind of getting to or the question that I'm, I'm interested in, if you have thoughts on, is the relationship or the influence or the connection between design and policy? Um, how, how do these things actually connect or do they connect um, or how do they talk to each other in, you know, thinking about how restorative justice could actually completely change, like, the policy of how we think about all of these things? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, everyone asks about design and policy, architecture and policy. I used to not be able to answer that question. And now that we work with so many policymakers, I can talk about it forever. I okay. mean, but I'll say two things. First, I want to say a building can have impact and I, and, and I can give you just a quick example. Restore Oakland, which is the country's first center for restorative justice and restorative economics that opened last year, uh, is already being copied by others, right? So it gets, mm. it's getting amplified. And second, what I've seen them be able to do because of this building, not just the stuff it was supposed to do, right? It was going to train hundreds and hundreds of people a year to get living wage jobs. It's going to be diverting cases out of court rather than into restorative justice and peacemaking but they have used that building as a grounding point to set up an entire a community investment fund. Mm. Uh, the restaurant itself is, is also become a separate community investment, right? So a building, when we don't think about, so there's design and then there's actual place-based impact. Right, that owning, right. A, right? And so we help them to buy right. it. So they own it, we designed it. You have to look, and this will lead into the policy piece, if, as a designer, you are not looking at the intersection of policy, finance, programming in place, and I don't mean architecture programming, but like actual service delivery and how the program right. is working, right. if you don't look at all those things together, your building might not have as much impact, but then even then it probably will, right, if your intention is good, because mm -hmm. they're doing stuff I did not expect them to do. So right. I am like, whoa, look what this building is doing and look what it's yeah. allowed them to do. Um, and on the policy side, we are working with, we're now working with the Vera Institute for justice, their policy. Mm, yeah. folk. We are working with the mayor's office in Atlanta with an entire policy shop. The community organizers we work with are almost all pushing policy, right? They're policy mm -hmm. change makers. So mm -hmm. I almost now am only working with policy. People. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which has been not only, but like a lot, almost all my projects have a heavy policy piece huh. on it. Okay. Restorative justice is directly often tied to policy, right? The right. district attorney and the, the or the school system or whatever has to decide that we are going, as a new policy, we are going to be diverting cases out of court. Or we're going to get rid of the zero tolerance policy and implement restorative justice. So mm -hmm. if you are looking at... It's why we look for innovative programming and policy changes, and we follow them. And mm. we also know that not just following, but being right out front with them as they're developing the policy 
is the best because right. often policy changes are made, but there's no built infrastructure to support the policy change. As we all know, buildings and infrastructure take a long time to build. The procurement process is a pain in the ass. Like it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So if you're not looking at the program, the policy and the built environment together, you're going to have problems. So, for example, in California, you know, we have all this criminal justice policy reform and programs like early release programs, et cetera. Where are people going to live? Right. There's nobody built the transitional housing, supported transitional housing required to support that program. So now everybody's hustling, trying to find the places for them. The conditions Mm. within which they're putting them are 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 crap, not much better often than the prison itself. So my firm is we often find ourselves trying to, to fix the situation or create a new thing or or create a model that is uh, dignified because mm-hmm. if had they thought about that, but they did it quickly, right? The policy can, policy can get changed faster than, uh, than getting a building bill. Right. So yeah, that's interesting. you have to think about that. And that's once again, the ideal scenario is to have everybody on the team up front working together and thinking about all the points of it. And it's just stuff that people have been saying forever. Diversity, <laughs> diversity actually works. Yeah. Mono crops don't work. <laughs> right. Don't do it that way. Do what nature right. does. It's so obvious, but we don't do it. <laughs> we don't have the language for it. We don't know how to work yeah. with other people that don't speak our language. We don't know how we don't have the processes for it. So I've been very grateful to see how we're we're getting really good at it. Uh our work in Atlanta has been very successful and exciting to see government working with community organizers, with policy people, uh, programming experts, uh, we're the built environment people, uh, finance people, all together working to, on, you know, closing down a prison, uh, sorry, a jail, right? So in order to close the jail down, you had to have the policy people at the table and we're mm. turning it into a center for equity. Mm. So it requires what are the new things that are going to happen here, you know, and we have to do it. We've been working on this project for over a year, but everybody working together. It's a lot of people, but right. it's on the 15th, we will submit to the mayor four options on what to do with that building, which now, thanks to COVID, only has over a thousand beds. Now there's like five people left. Wow. So that's where we're trying. You know, we don't need those. We don't need jails. I mean, yeah. come on, y'all. If we could actually yeah. be visionary and imagine... And and just know what actually makes us safe and designed for that. Right. We don't have to have those things. We don't. Yeah. It's yeah. not crazy. It's actually very practical and very doable. I love that. I'm curious how this work for you, how has designing justice, designing spaces evolved since you started it? How have your goals for it changed has the work gone in places you didn't think it would go and then on the flip side what parts from that kind of those initial ideas are still there kind of carrying you carrying you through that's a good question i have to say that happens every day every day <laughs> every day it's sounds right new. every single day um so you know but it's also fascinating how the initial idea is still in place, right? The original mission mm-hmm. was to build the infrastructure to end mass incarceration. And mm-hmm. only last year did I issue a statement and, and start to talk about what that infrastructure actually is mm-hmm. in, in any kind of codified way. I mean, it's very, you know, we're like, okay, we've identified three buckets of infrastructure that have to be built and one is restorative reinvestments in community with a goal of seeing, you know, 75% of what we're spending in the criminal justice sector reinvested in communities most impacted. So that's a range of infrastructure, right? That's a lot of stuff, but that's mm-hmm. reinvestments in community. Second is the repurposing and reimagining of empty criminal justice infrastructure. We built mm-hmm. so much of that stuff, so mm-hmm. much. This is why you be careful what you build, that what do we do with it now? Mm-hmm. And we've got to think about that because if we don't, if we don't think do something else with it, these are economic generators for communities. 
they are get reused by ice, etc. They get reused uh, as yeah. so again when you if you build something. The problem is it's hard to make changes, right? That's a classic example of how, of how architecture mm-hmm. perpetuates and anchors the inability to change mm-hmm. because it's already there. It was built for incarceration. Well, let's just put some different people in there. Yeah. Um, so we have to either demolish it or repurpose it quickly. And then the third is is this restorative reentry piece. If we have like millions of people incarcerated, what we're seeing and COVID is amplifying this as people are cutting their jail populations in half, people are, so we, we seeing mass decarceration and we haven't built for that. So restorative re, re-entry infrastructure uh, also has to get built. So those are the three things that the firm has grown into focusing on when originally, you know, I was like, we're going to make restorative justice centers. Yay. And like, we <laughs> right. do make those, we do. And right. we need a bazillion more of them. And what's been great is we do a ton of advocacy work too. Like we now have a fourth service, which is kind of, we've, I didn't expect that. It was a change. Like, Mm, oh, we're doing advocacy. Like that Ted talk is being used by community organizers at rallies. You know, I was like, oh, I didn't know they'd do that with that. And so we've seen the idea of restorative justice centers now in the lexicon of our language, right? That didn't used to be there. We were the ones talking about it. I was talking about it before DJDS, but DJDS really amplified that. And now it's like in RFPs and stuff. You know, it's right. great, right? right? Yeah. So that has been a change. The The scope and scale of the work has changed. But honestly, the ideas were already there. And, and now it's just, things are just manifesting. Shit's just getting built. And <laughs> yeah. It's happening. And so that yeah. is amazing. Um and yeah, I mean, and that was, that was kind of why I was asking the question, too, as being somebody who was, in a way, learning about all of this as you were doing it, I I can't imagine you being able to foresee this moving into all these other directions because you were thinking about it, you know, very specifically and then realizing you know, I don't mean it to sound like this was, you know, this kind of sudden realization. All of this stuff is connected. And then like, oh, this is also about uh, economics. This is also about real estate. This is also about advocacy that all of, you know, how does it, how do you keep that core vision while also realizing that it's a lot bigger than maybe you realized? You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the core vision, I'm the, I'm my job. That's my job is to carry the core vision. Like that's just my as executive director. That's my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it very easy. Um, yeah. And I, I have people have told me this before, but they're like, oh, I've, I've watched you with this idea and then expand your idea and, and flow and move in order to hold, like, we'll expand what we do based on who is in our organization. It's a much more feminine Mm -hmm. way of working, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a much more feminine way of organizing uh, a firm and the work. But I, you know, I feel I'm very fortunate and I'm very grateful that I myself am very clear on what the mission is. And Mm. and I'm undeterred, right? I'm undeterred. Mm -hmm. I'm my vision is super clear. I'm very clear. And that doesn't mean you don't change, right? Just clarity right. doesn't mean you don't expand or modify or move or shift. It's when you become calcified and rigid that it's almost impossible to hold the vision truly. Yeah. You, yeah. you do have to be open um, in order to, to sustain it. And things are manifesting now. Yeah. Um, and that's... I, as you were saying about your podcast and you're like, oh my God, like I did, this is what happened. I feel the same way. I'm like, oh, whoa. Oh, hey, yeah, that, yeah. that's happening. You know, yeah, yeah. And you just have to, if you have the vision, you just have to recognize when you see it. Right. You right, know, when right. shows up in an outfit, I'm like, oh, that's a costume. You're not actually, you know, a dove. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know yeah. that my vision's clear enough to see that. Right. Um, but, you know, you, you have to have clarity in your mind of what it is you want to do and, and be intuitive and trust your yeah. instincts. This is an instinctual yeah. process. So my last question 
uh, and this is the question that I use to end all of these uh, all of these conversations. And you mentioned earlier that you don't have time to read smart things. Um, but <laughs> I, really I, am, don't. <laughs> I am interested in what you are reading uh, right now. If there's anything kind of interesting that you're you're reading or thinking about, you know, I maybe this is very telling. Uh, I love fantasy. Mm. Uh, I love N.K. Mm. Jameson. You know. Yeah. Black female. Uh, I love Octavia Butler. Yep, yep. These are visionaries, right? Visionary women of color who uh, I I read their stuff and I'm like, you guys are seeing the future. Yeah. You know, and I get very moved by that. So when I have free time, you know, to read, and it's not. Don't get me wrong. I love to read. <laughs> and I, I knew can what you read. meant. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> but when I read, I want to. I want to be in in. In, in someone's imagination, yeah. you know, not in some analysis coming from the same voice, the same, you know, yeah. I, I'm not interested in being analytical or critiquing the current systems. I want to completely imagine new things. Yeah. And these women have done that um, in their lives and with their work and their writing, they're pioneers, they're visionaries. And so I like spending time with them uh, when I'm, not reading Harry Potter. Everyone knows I love Harry Potter. I can't help it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's interesting. That is, I feel like that is very telling. I think you're exactly right. I think, I think there's something to that. <laughs> there, there is, there is. Um, this was such a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I think that the work you're doing is so important and, and, the way you are working through it is exactly right. I am a fan uh, and I'm glad that we ha got to have this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you, Jared. I really appreciated your questions and the conversations. I do a lot of these and uh, believe me, I get these questions <laughs> that are just so inane. I'm like, did you read? Did you at least watch the TED Talk? Like, yeah. <laughs> they don't know what the hell's going on. So yeah. I, I just appreciate having a conversation today that actually feels elevating. So thank you. Oh, thank you. This episode was recorded on May 12th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Thank you.